Chapter Two of Shorty McCabe by Sewell Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. What do we do with Homer, eh? Ah, forget it. Say, soon's he's got back to town and found he could navigate round by himself, he begins to count up expenses. Then he asks us to put in a bill. Bill says I. What for? I'm no hired man. I've been doing this for fun. Leonidas says the same. But Homer wouldn't have it that way. He says we've done him a lot of good and lost our valuable time, and he'll feel hurt if we don't let him make us a little present. With that, he pries open a fat leather green goods case, pours over a layer of yellowbacks two or three inches thick, and fishes out a couple of ten spots. Stung, says Leonidas, under his breath. Homer, says I, shoving him back at him, if you're as grateful as all that, I'll tell you what you'd better do. Keep these, and found a home for incurable tightwads. Then we loses him in the crowd, and each of us strikes out for himself. Blessed if I know where Leonidas strayed to, but I'm dead sure of the place I fetched up at. It was Italy, North Italy. Ever been there? Well, don't. Nothing but dagoes and garlic and roads that run uphill. Say, some day when my roll needs the anti-fat treatment, I'm going to send over there and have em put up a monument that'll read, Here's where Shorty McCabe was buried alive for five weeks. Doing? Wasn't a blamed thing doing there. We was just assassinating time, that's all. But the boss thought he'd liked it for a while, so I had to hang on. The boss? Oh, he's just the boss. Guess you wouldn't know him. He hasn't been cured by three bottles of anything, and isn't much for buying billboard space. But he's a star, all right. He's got a mint somewhere, a little private mint of his own, that runs days and nights and overtime. Scotty mine? No, better than that. Defunct grandmothers and such. It's been coming his way ever since he was big enough to clip a coupon. Don't believe he knows how much he has got, but that don't worry him. He don't even try to spend the gate receipts, just uses what he wants and lets the rest pyramid. Course, he's out of my class in a way, but then again, he ain't. The way we come to hook up was like this. You see, when I quits Homer, I takes the first thing that comes along, which happens to be the Jericho Lamb. He wants me to train him for his go with Grasshopper Jake, and I did. Well, we pulls it off in Denver. The lamb he bores in like a stone crusher for five rounds. Then he stops a cross hook with his jaw and his jawed some. That brings out the yeller. Spite of all I could say, he stops rushing and plays for wind and safety. Think of that, with the grasshopper as groggy as a five days old calf. Well, I saw what was coming to him right there. When the bell rings, I chucks my towel to the rubber and quits. I hadn't hired out for no wet noise, and I told the crowd so. Just as I was making my sneak, this quiet-speaking chap falls in alongside and begins to talk to me. First off, I sized him up for one of them English Johnnies that had lost his eyeglass. But that's where I was dead wrong. He wasn't no Johnny, and he wasn't no tin-horn sport. But he was a new one on me. They don't grow many like him, I guess, 
so no wonder I didn't get wise right away. Think the lamb's all in, says he. All in, says I. He never had anything to put in. He was licked before the bell tapped. And me training him for five weeks. I'm going to kick myself all the way back to New York. I'll help you, says he. I back that lamb of yours to win. How much, says I. Oh, only a few hundred. But you ain't seen him licked yet, says I. I'll take your word for it, says he. Say, that was no tinhorn play, was it? He goes off and leaves his good money up just on a flyer like that. You're the real goods, says I. I can return the sentiment, says he. So we took the midnight east. When we got the morning papers at Omaha, we saw that Lamb only lasted halfway through the seventh, and Possum the count at that. Well, we got some acquainted before we hit Chicago, and by the time we landed in Jersey City, I'd signed articles with him for a year. He calls it secretary, but I holds out for sparring partner. Oh, he can handle the mint sum, all right. None of your parlor YMCA business, either. But give and take. He strips at 140 and can stand punishment like a stevedore. But, of course, there's no chance of ever getting him on the platform. He likes to go his four rounds before dinner, just to take the drab coloring off the world in general. That's the way he puts it. Take him all around. He's a thoroughbred. I know that much. But after that, I don't follow him. I used to wonder sometimes, giving most Johnnies his pile and turn him loose, and what would they do? They'd wear out the club windowsills and take in pink teas and do the society turn. But not for him. He's a mixer, the boss is. He wants to see things, all kinds. Sometimes he lugs me along and sometimes he don't. It all depends on whether I'd fit in. When he heads for Fifth Avenue, I know I'm let out. But when he gets into a sack coat and derby hat, I'm betting that maybe we'll fetch up somewheres on the east side. Perhaps it'll be the grand annual ball of the Truck Drivers Association, or just one of them anarchist talk fests in the back room of some beer parlor. There's no telling. We may drink muddy coffee out of dinky brass cups with a lot of Syrian rug sellers down on Washington Street, or drop into the middle of a gang of sailors down on Front Street. And I'm no bodyguard, mind. The boss ain't in much need of that. But he likes to have someone to talk to. And I guess most of his friends don't go in for such promiscuous visiting lists as he does. I like it well enough. But where he gets any fun out of it, I can't see. I put up to him once, and what do you suppose he says? asks me if I ever heard of a duck by the name of Pansy de Leon. Sounds kind of familiar, says I. Don't he run a hotel or something down to Palm Beach? You're warm, says the boss, but you've mixed your dates. Old Pansy struck the East Coast about 400 years before our friend Flagler annexed it, and he wasn't in the hotel business. Exploring was his line. He was looking for a new kind of mineral water that he was going to call the elixir of life. Well, in some ways, Pansy and I are alike. It was all Josh, all right, that he was handing out, but he meant something by it, for the boss ain't the kind to talk just for the sake of making noise. I never let on but what I was next. Later in the season, I had a chance to come back at him with it. For along in February, we got under way for Palm Beach ourselves. 
Going to take a hack at the Lixer business? I says. No, Shorty, says he. Just going to dodge a few blizzards and watch the mob. But he didn't like it much, being in that push, so we took a jump over to Bermuda, where everything's so white it makes your eyes ache. That didn't suit him either. Shorty, says he one day, you didn't sign on for any outside tour, but I've got the go fever bad. Can you stand it a while in foreign parts? I'm game, says I, not knowing what I was to be up against. So we hiked back to New York and Mr. Rankin's. He's the ladylike gent that stays home and keeps our trousers creased and juggles the laundry bag and so forth when we're there. Mr. Rankin's, he packs a couple of steamer trunks and off we starts. Well, we hit a lot of outlandish places like Paris and Berlin, and finally, when things began to warm up some, and I knew by the calendar that the hokey pokey men had come out on the Bowery, we lands in Monte Carlo. Say, I'd heard a lot about Monte Carlo on and off, and there was a song about it once, you know, but if that's the best imitation of Phil Daly's they can put up over there, they better go out of business. Not that the scenery is bang up and the police protection okay, but the game? Well, I've seen more excitement over a ten-cent ante. The boss didn't care much for that sort of thing anyway. He touched him up for a stack or two, but almost went to sleep over it. It wasn't until old Bluebeak butted in that our visit began to look interesting. He was a count or a duke or something, with a name full of I's and L's, but I called him Bluebeak for short. The boss said for a miniature word painting, that couldn't be bettered. Never saw a finer specimen of hand-decorated frontspiece in my life. It wasn't just red nor purple. It was as near blue as a nose can get. Otherwise, he was a tall, skinny old freak with a dyed mustache and little black eyes as shifty as a fox terrier's. He was as polite, though, as a book agent, and as smooth as a business side of a banana skin. "'What's his game?' says I to the boss, after Bluebeak and him had swapped French conversation for an hour. "'Is it gold bricks or green goods?' "'My friend the Count,' says the boss, "'wants to rent us a castle, all furnished and found, "'a genuine antique with a pedigree that runs back to Mark Antony.' "'A castle,' says I. "'What's that the cue to?' And how did he guess you were a come-on? Every American is a come-on, shorty, said the boss. But this is a new proposition to me. However, I mean to find out. I've told him to come back after dinner. And old Bluebeak had his memory with him all right. He came back. He and the boss had a long session of it. In the morning, the boss says to me, Shorty, throw out your chest. You're going to live in a castle for a while. Then he told me how it happened. Bluebeak wasn't any con man at all, just one of those hard-up gents whose name looks well on a list of guests, but don't carry weight with the pay and teller. He was in such a rush to get the ranch off his hands, though, that price didn't seem to figure much. That's what made the boss sit up and take notice. He was a great one for wanting to know why. We'll start today, says he. So off we goes, moseying down into Italy on a bum railroad, staying at bummer hotels, and switching off to a rickety old chaise behind a pair of animated frames that showed the SPCA hadn't gotten as far as Italy yet. 
think of riding from the battery to White Plains in a Fifth Avenue stage. That would be a chariot race to what we took before we hove in sight of that punky castle. After that, it was like climbing three sets of palisades, one top of the other, on a road that did the corkscrew all the way. That's your castle, is it? says I, rubbering up at it. Looks like a storage warehouse stranded on Pike's Peak. Gee, but I wouldn't like to fall out of one of those bedroom windows. You never hit anything for an hour. Handy place to have company, though. Wouldn't have to put up the potatoes until you saw them coming. So that's a castle, is it? I don't wonder old Bluebeak had a lot of conversation to unload. If I live up there all summer, I shall accumulate enough talk to last me the rest of my life. Oh, don't imagine we'll be lonesome, puts in the boss. I fancy I caught a sight of one or two of our neighbors on the way. You did, says I. Where? Behind the rocks, says he, kind of snickering. But I never savvied. I'd had my eyes glued to that Dago Waldorf Astoria balanced up there on that toothpick of a mountain. I had a batty idea the next whiff of breeze would jar it loose. When they'd open up a gate like the double doors of an armory and let us in, I forgot all that. Say, that castle was the solidest thing I ever run across. The walls were so thick that the windows looked like they were set at the end of tunnels. In the middle was a big court, such as they have in these swell new apartment houses, and a lot of doors and windows opened on that. Much as eleven rooms and bath, eh? says I. The count assures me that there are two hundred and odd rooms, not reckoning the dungeons, says the boss. I hope we'll find one or two of them fit to live in. We did, just about that. A white-headed old villain who looked as if he'd just escaped from a Pirates of Penzance chorus, Vincenzo, he called himself, took our credentials and then showed us around the shop. There was a dining room about the size of the Grand Central train shed. Say, a Harlem man would have wept for joy at sight of it. And there was a picture gallery that had Steve Brody's collection beat a mile. As for bedrooms, there was enough to accommodate a state convention. The only running water in sight, though, was in the fountain out in the court, and the place looked as though when the gas man made his last call he'd taken the fixtures along with the meter. Yet the boss seemed to be tickled to death with the whole shooting match. At dinner that night he made me sit in one end of the dining-room table while he sat at the other, and we were so far apart we had to shout at each other when we talked. The backs of some of those dining-room chairs were more than eight feet tall. It was like leaning up against a billboard. The waiters looked like stage villains out of a job, and whenever they passed the potatoes, I peeled my eye for a knife play. It didn't come, though. Nothing did. We put in nearly a week rummaging through that moldy old barracks. It was three days before I could come down to breakfast without getting lost. The boss found a lot to look at and paw over. Old books and pictures, rusty tin armor and such truck. He even poked around in the coal cellars that they had called dungeons. I liked being up in the towers best. I'd go up there and look about due west where New York was the last time I saw it. I never wanted wings quite so bad as I did then. And say, 
I'd even given up a month's salary for a sportin' extra some nights. Dull? Why, there are crossroads up in Sullivan County that would seem like the tenderloin alongside of that place. Funny thing, though, was that the boss was so stuck on it. He gas about the lakes and the mountains and the sky and all that, pointing them out to me as if they were worth seeing, when I'd seen better than that many a time, painted on backdrops, and could get away from them when I wanted. But here it was a case of nowhere to stay but in. You couldn't go piking around the landscape without falling off the edge. Guess I'd have gone clean nutty if it hadn't been for the little glove play we did every afternoon. We had some of the chorus hands fix up a nice lot of straw in a corner of the courtyard, so's to sort of upholster the paving stones. And after we got used to the new footwork, it was almost as good as a rubber mat. We'd been having a gingery little go one day, with the whole crew of the castle, from the head poiser down to the second assistant pan wrestler, holding their breath in the background, and I was playing shower bath for the boss with a leather bucket dripping out of the fountain pool and sousing it over him when I spots a deadhead in the audience. She'd been playing peekaboo behind one of them big stone pillars, but I guess she had got so interested that she forgot and stepped out into the open. She was a native, all right, but say, she wasn't any back-row dago girl. She was in the prima donna class, she was. Ever see Melba made up for the common act? Well, this one was about half Melba's size, but for shape and color she had her stung to a whisper, and as for wardrobe, she had it all on. Gold hoops in her ears, tinkly things in a jacket, and a rainbow dress with the reds and greens leading the field. Eyes were her strong point, though, regular forty candle powers. She had the current all switched on, too, and a plum center range on the boss. Now, he wasn't exactly in reception costume, the boss wasn't. When he'd knocked off his running shoes, it left him in a pair of salmon trunks and cleared the knees considerable. He made a fine ad for a physical culture school just as he stood, for he's well-muscled and his underpinning mates up, and he don't interfere when he walks. The cold water had brought out the baby pink all over him, and he looked like one of these circus riders does on the four-sheet posters. He had the limelight, too, for a streak of sun coming down between the towers just hit him. I see the girl wasn't missing any of these points. It wasn't any snapshot she was taking. It was a time exposure. "'Who's your lady friend in the wings?' says I to the boss. "'Where?' says he. I jerks my thumb at her. For a minute there wasn't a word said. The boss wasn't able, I guess, and the girl never moved an eyelash.' Then he yells for the bath towel and makes a break inside, me after him. When we'd rubbed down and got into our Broadway togs, we chases back and organizes ourselves into a board of inquiry. Who was she, regular boarder or just transient? Where did she come from, and why? Likewise, how? Trolley, subway, or balloon? but I'm blessed if that whole gang didn't go as mum as a lot of railroad hands after a smash-up. Why, they hadn't seen no such lady. Cross their hearts, they hadn't. Maybe it was old Rosa, yes? And Rosa a sylph that would fit tight in a pork barrel. A goat, then? Let's give him the third degree, says I. So we done it, 
locked em all in the room and put em on the carpet one by one. They was scared stiff, too stiff to talk. All but old Vincenzo, the white-haired old pirate the Count had left in charge. He was a lovely pea-green under the gills, but he made a stagger at putting up a game of talk. No, he hadn't seen no one. He had been watching their excellencies in their affair of honor. Still, he couldn't swear that we hadn't seen someone. Folks did see things at the castle. He had seen sights himself, though generally after dark. He remembered a song about a beautiful young lady who back in the seventeen hundred and something had... But I shut him off there. This fairy might have seen seventeen summers or maybe eighteen, but she's no antique. I could kiss the book on that. She was a regular casino broiler. I made a point of this. It didn't fiaze the old sinner, though. He went on perjuring himself as cheerful as a paid witness, and he'd have broken the Ananias record if he had time. That will do for now, says the boss, in a kind of step-up-front-there tone. If you don't know who she was just now, we'll let it go at that. But by tomorrow, you'll know the whole story. It'll be healthier for all hands if you do. Vincenzo, though, didn't have a proper notion of what he was up against. Next day, he knew less than the day before. He was ready to swear the whole outfit by all the saints in the chapel that there hadn't been a girl on the premises. Bring him along, shorty, says the boss, starting downstairs. There's a hole in the sub-cellar that I want this old pirate to look through. If that hole had been cut for an air chute, it was a dandy, for the muzzle of it was a mile, more or less, from anything solider than air. We skewered Vincenzo's arms to the small of his back and let him down by the heels until he had a bird's-eye view of the three counties. Then we pulled him up and tested his memory. It worked all right. That upside-down movement had shook up his thought-works. He was as anxious to testify as the front-benchers at a Bowery mission on soup day. We loosened the cords a bit, set him where he could see the chute plain, and told him to blaze away. Lucky the boss knows Italian, for the Vincenzo couldn't separate himself from English fast enough. But they had me guessing what it was all about. I couldn't make out why the old chap was using up all the dago words in the box just to tell who was the lady that had the private view. Once in a while, the boss would jab in a question, and then Vincenzo would wake his jaw all the faster. When it was all over, the boss looks at me as pleased as though he'd got money from home and says, Shoity, how's your noive? Not much below pa, says I. Why? Because, says he, they're after us. Brigands. Brigands, says I. Tut, tut. Don't tell me that this dead-and-alive country can show up anything like that. It can, says he. The woods are full of them. Then he gives me the framework of what old Vincenzo has been telling him. The prima donna girl, it seems, was a lady brigandess, daughter of a heavy villain that led the bunch. She's coming to size us up and make an estimate as to what we'd fetch on a forced sale. They had spotted us from the time we registered and had been hanging around outside, laying for us to separate. Their game was to pinch one of us and do business with the other on a cash basis, wanted someone left who could go away and cash a check, you see. 
and we didn't show no disposition to take after-dinner promenades or before-breakfast rambles, they ups and tells Vincenzo that they wants the run of the castle and promises to toast his toes if they don't get it. They don't have to promise but once, for Vincenzo has been through the mill. It was this kind of work that had queered the count. According to Vincenzo, old Bluebeak had been pat-crowed regular every season for five summers, and the thing had got on his nerves. Well, Vincenzo lets three or four of em in one day, just as the boss and me was swapping uppercuts and body punches in the courtyard. Maybe they didn't like the looks of things. Anyway, they hauled off and sent for the main guy, who was busy down the line a ways. He comes up with the reserves, and his first move is to send the girl in to get a line on us. And that was the way things stood up to date. Who'd have thought it, says I. The way she looked at you, I suspicion she marked you out as something good to eat. That turned the boss red behind the ears. I'm afraid we'll have to ask for her visiting card next time she calls, says he. Come, Vincenzo, I want you to show me about locking up. After that, no one came or went without showing a pass, and I lugged about four pounds of brass keys around, for we didn't want to be stood up by a gang of moth-eaten brigands loaded with old hardware. They covered close by day, but at night we could see em sneaking round the walls, like a bunch of second-story men new to their job. Neither the boss nor I had a gun, never having had a call for such a thing, but we found a couple of old blunderbusses hung up in the hall, regular junk-shop relics, and we unlimbered them, loading with nails, scrap iron, and broken glass. Course, we couldn't hit anything special, but it broke the monotony for both sides. Once in a while, they'd shoot back, just out of politeness, but I don't believe any of them took any metal at a Schautzenfest. This lasted for two or three nights. It wasn't such bad fun either for us. The party of the second part, though, was off on a vacation like we were. They were out rustling for money to pay for the landlord and butcher, and they were losing time. Hard working lot of brigands they were, too. I wouldn't have monkeyed around after dark on that perpendicular landscape for twice the money, and I don't believe any of them drew more than union rates. Fact is, I was getting to feel almost sorry for them, when one night something happened to give me the marble heart. I'd been making my rounds with the brass foundry, seeing that all the tramp chains were on, putting out the cat and coming to Shoreacres act, when I see something dark, skidoo across the court to where the boss stood smoking in the moonshine by the fountain. I does a sprint, too, and was just about to practice a little Eleventh Avenue jiu-jitsu on whoever it was, when Flip goes a piece of black lace, and there was the lady brigandess, some out of breath, but still in the game. She opens up on the boss in a stage whisper that whirls him around as if he'd been on a string. Not wanting to butt in ahead of my number, I sort of loafed around just outside the ropes, but near enough to block a foul. Now, I don't know just all they said, nor how they said it, but from what the boss told me afterward, they must have had a nice little confab that would be the real thing for a grand opera if someone would only set it to music. Seems that she'd found out, the lady bringing this had, that the old man's gang had run across a bricked-up passageway down in the corner of the basement, a kind of 
all goods must be delivered here gate that had been thrown into the discards of course they'd gone to work to open it up and they'd got as far as some iron bars that called for a hacksaw they'd sent off for their breaking and entering kit meaning to finish the job next day the following night they'd planned to drop in unexpected so the boss up in his blanket before he could make a move and caught him off until i could bail him out with a peck or so of real money the rest of the scene the boss never would fill in just as it came off the bat but i managed to piece out that the brigandist sizing us up for a couple of pikers reckoned that we wouldn't pan out much cash and that the boss might be used some rough by the gang that prospect not settling well in her mind she rolls out the back door of their camp makes a swift trip around to our new private entrance squeezes through the bars and comes up to put us wise it must have been just as she got to them lines that the boss began taking a good look at her i saw him gazing into her eyes like he'd taken out a search warrant don't know as i could blame him much either she was a top liner wasn't anything coy or kittenish about her she stood up and gave him as good as he sent next i see him make the only fool play but one that i ever knew the boss to make regular kid trick here says he pulling off the big carbuncle ring he always wears that's to remember me by she didn't even look at it no jewelry for hers instead she says something kind of low and sassy, pokes her face up and begins to pucker. The boss, he sort of sidesteps and squints over his shoulder at me. Now, I'm not saying what I'd do if a girl like that gave me the sissy luftus eye. It ain't up to me, but I know what I'd want the crowd to do, and I did it. When I turned around again, they was just at the breakaway, so it must have been one of the bye-bye forever kind, such as you see at the dock on sailing day. Then she took us down to show us how she came in and squeezed herself through the bars. She shook hands just once, and that was all. That night there was a grand howl from the brigands. They had put in hours of real work, the kind they'd figured on cutting out after they got into the brigand business only to run into a burglar-proof shutter which we had put up. They pranced around to the front gate and shook their fists at us, and called us American pigs, and invited us to come out and have our ears trimmed, and a lot of nonsense like that. I wanted to turn loose the blunderbusses, but the boss said, No, let them enjoy themselves. How long do you suppose they'll keep that sort of thing up, says I? Vincenzo says some of them will stay around all summer unless we buy them off, says he. That's lovely, says I, for anyone that's dead gone on the life here. I'm not, says he. I can't get out of here too quick now. Oh, ho, says I, meaning not much of anything. Being kept awake by their racket that night, I got to thinking how we could give that gang of grafters the double cross. There wasn't any use making a back-alley dash for it, as we didn't know the lay of the land, and they were between us and New York. But most of the fancy thinking I've ever done has been along that line. How to get back to Broadway. Along toward morning, I throws five aces at the flip, turns up an ID that had been at the bottom of the deck. It's a winner, says I, and goes to sleep happy. 
After breakfast, I digs through my steamer trunk and hauls out a four-ounce can of aluminum paint that the intelligent Mr. Rankins had mistook for shaving soap and put in before we left home. Then I picks out a couple of suits of that tin armor in the hall. A medium-sized one and a short-legged, forty-fat outfit, and I gets busy with my brush. "'What's up?' says the boss, seeing me slinging on the aluminum paint. "'Been reading a piece on how to beautify the house in the lady's home companion,' says I. "'Got any burnt orange ribbon about you?' It was a three-hour job, but when I was through, I'd renovated up that cast-off toggery so that it looked as good as if it had been just picked from the bargain counter. Then I waited for things to turn up. The brigands opened the ball as soon as it was dark. They'd rigged up a battering ram and allowed they'd meant to smash in our front door. The boss laughed. That gate looks as if it had stood a lot of that kind of boy's play, and I guess it's good for a lot more, says he. Now, if they were not hopelessly medieval, they would try a stick of dynamite. We could have poured hot water down on them or dropped a few bricks, but we didn't. We just let them skin their knuckles and strain their backs on the battering ram. About moonrise, I sprung my scheme. What do you say to throwing a scare into that bunch of back numbers, says I? How, says the boss. I led him down to the court, where I laid out the plated tinware to dry. Think you can fit yourself into some of that boilerplate, says I? That hit the boss in the short ribs. We tackled the job offhand, me strapping a section on him, and he clamping another one on me. It was like dressing for a masquerade in the dark, neither of us ever having worn steel boots or harveyized vests before. Some of the joints didn't seem to fit any too close, and a lot of it I suppose we got on hindside front and upside down. But in the course of half an hour, we were harnessed for fair, including a conning tower apiece on our heads. Then we did the march past just to see how we looked. With a little white muslin, you could do to go on as the ghost in Hamlet, says the boss through his front bars. You sound like a junk wagon coming down the street, says I, and you're a fair imitation of a tin shop on parade. Shall we go for a midnight stroll? I'm ready, says the boss grabbing up a couple of two-handed skull-splitters that I'd laid out to finish our costumes, we swung open the gate and sashayed out, calm and dignified, into the middle of that bunch of brigands. It wasn't hardly a square deal, of course, they being brought up on a steady diet of ghost stories, and I reckon there was a spooky look about us that sent a frappe wireless up and down those dago spines. But after all, it was the banana oil the aluminum paint was mixed with that toined the trick. Smelled it, haven't you? If there's any perfume fitter for a lost soul than a tar of banana oil, it hasn't been discovered. First they went bug-eyed, next they sniffed, and the second sniffed one big duffer with rings on his ears and a fine assortment of second-hand pepper-boxes in his sash, digs up a scared yell that would have done credit to one of these Wuck's tree, wuck's tree, boys, and then he skidoos into the rocks like someone had tied a can to him. That set him all off, same's when you light the green cracker at the end of the bunch. Some yelled, some groaned, and some made no remarks, but they faded 
Inside of two minutes by the clock, we had the front yard to ourselves. Coyton, says I to the boss, this is where we do a little disappearing ourselves before they get curious and come back. We hustled into the castle, pried ourselves out of our tin roofing, chucked our dunnage into the Blue Beak's best carry-all, hitched a couple of auction house steppers, and lit out on the town trail without so much as stopping to shake a da-da to old Vincenzo. I didn't breathe real deep, though, until we fetched sight of a little place where the mountain left off and the Dago police was supposed to begin. Just before we got to the first house, we see something up on a rock at one side of the road. They was coming, red and sudden, and we saw who it was on the rock. The lady brigandess, sure thing. Now, don't tax me with how she got there. I'd quit trying to keep cases on her. But there she was, waiting for us. As we got in line, she glued her eyes on the boss and tossed him a lip-thriller with a real Juliet Roxanne movement. And the boss blew one back. Well, that suited me all right, so far as it went. But as we made for a turn in the road, the boss reached out for the lines and pulled in our pair of the skates. Then he turns and looks back. So did I. She was still there, for a fact, and it kind of looked as if she was holding her arms out towards him. "'By God, Shorty,' says the boss, breathing quick and talking through his teeth, "'I'm going back.' "'Sure,' says I, "'to New York, and I had a half-Nelson on him before he knew it was coming. We went four miles that way, too, the horses finding the road before I dared to let him up. I looked for trouble then.' But it had been all over within a breath, just an open and shut piece of battiness, same as fellers have when they jump a bridge. He was meek enough the rest of the way, but sore. I couldn't pry a word out of him anyway. Not until we got settled down in the smoking room of a Mediterranean steamer headed for Sandy Hook did he shake his trance. Shorty, says he, giving me the friendly palm, I owe you a lot more than apologies. Well, I ain't no collection agency, says I. Sponge it off. I was looking for the elixir, says he, and, and I found it. I can get all the elixir I want, says I, between the East River and the North, and I don't need no cork puller either. That's me. I've been back a week now, and even the screech of the L train sounds good. Everything looks good and smells good and feels good. You don't have to pinch yourself to find out whether or not you're alive. You know all the time that you're in New York, where there's something doing twenty hours in the day. Italy? Oh, yes, I want to go there again. When I get to be a mummy. End of chapter 2